2, verse 9. But first, a little background about the author. It's Peter. Peter was known as Simon when he first became a follower of Jesus. He was part of the inner circle of the 12 disciples. When he first made his confession that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus changed his name to, and I looked this up, they pronounce it Kephas, but I've heard it Cephas, right? Uh, which is Arabic for rock, and later it was translated into Greek, which means Petros or Peter. Peter was to become a leader to guide the Messianic Jews through their earliest years. Later, Peter was called to carry the good news of Jesus beyond the borders of Israel. The book of 1 Peter was written to members of the Church of God spread throughout Asia Minor, which we now know as modern-day Turkey. He had learned that these mostly non-Jewish Christians were being persecuted by their Greek and Roman neighbors. So Peter wrote to encourage them in the midst of their suffering. So in the second chapter of the book, Peter directly addresses what God's people, the church, are called to be and to do. So we're going to look at 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So 1 Peter 2.9 gives us four descriptions of what God's people are to be. They are, somebody want to tell me the first one? Chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and his own special people. These four descriptions are strongly rooted in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 14.2 says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people of his own possession out of all the nations that are on the face of the earth. So who is he talking to? He was talking to the Israelites. But... In the New Testament, we see, it also says, we are a chosen generation. We are a priesthood. Peter connected the New Covenant Church with the purpose God gave to ancient Israel. Some theologians say he did this to emphasize the importance of the church as spiritual Israel. The church does not replace Israel as God's choice people, but he has grafted us through the blood of Jesus. We are now to learn from the Old Testament and to know the promises of God are for the church today, just like they were for Israel. Through the covenant with God, the Israelites, and the church of Christ, we are to obey his commands, and if we do, God will protect and bless his faithful people. So let's look at a chosen generation. What comes to mind when you think about the word generation? Lifespan like ours. I think when I think of generation, I think of my age group or my family, our generation, right? That's the way I think about it. Um, 
when we think about a generation, we usually think about the people who lived at the same time. So I looked up names of different generations. I thought it was interesting. You have the GI generation, which was 1901 to 1927. Uh, they were people who lived through the Depression and fought in World War II. The silent generation, 1928 to 1945, they rebuilt the economy, and they were thrifty, and they were traditionalists. Then you got the baby boomers. Woo, that's me. <laughs> you too. Uh, the baby, booner, baby boomers came around because after the war, there was a sudden increase in births. Imagine that, men being off the war, and then they came home. Then you have, uh, of course, the years of that was 46 to 1964. Generation X, 1965 to 1980. They were kind of known as the latchkey kids. Y'all remember that term? Yeah. When kids came home from school and nobody was home because the parents were all working. Yeah. So they were the latchkey kids. That was 1965 to 1980. Then you have the millennial generation, 1981 to 1996. Uh, they were more progressive and active. Then you have Generation Z, which is 1997 to 2010. The Generation Z, they were resource, they're resourceful, independent, um, independent learners, valued diversity and inclusion culture. Then we got Generation Alpha. That's anybody born after 2010. And it says that they were born into technology, like the iPad and Instagram. So I thought that was really interesting. I'd heard about different generations, but I didn't know why, why they were called that. So when Peter said you are a chosen generation, he wasn't limiting God's chosen people to a single generation. He was speaking to all generations, not just those that he was writing the letter to. He was writing it to all Christians for the rest of time. So what did Peter mean, mean by chosen generation? The Greek word for generation here is genos, G-E-N-O-S. In this verse, the word means kindred, offspring, or family. So this phrase could be translated, you are a chosen family. Peter wasn't emphasizing God's people as coming from the same time period, but from the same family, the same ancestry. So it would be your grandparents, your great-grandparents, and so on, all the way back. I believe he's wanting us to understand that we are all in the family of God, Jew and Gentile alike. Not all Jews believed that Jesus was the, was the Messiah, but there were Jews who converted to Christianity. And Peter is telling us that we're all part of the family of God. Ephesians 1.11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Predestined. Even before he created anything. I think he already knew who we were. He predestined us to live 
in this time. He had Peter in that time. And he knew that he had a chosen family, the Israelites. But he also knew that he was going to bring us in through the blood of Jesus. And it's just amazing how we know that in our, in our minds, but it's hard to sometimes understand it because we don't understand everything God does or how he does things. We talked about that today, how that God even created us, our bodies. And what a, think about that. What a mind that is to come up with men and women and, and how we were created and all that. It's just fascinating. So I want to ask you, how does one enter that family? First step is to be called into the family. That's when God the Father reaches out and draws a person to himself. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up at the last day. Verse 65 says, therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. So first you have to be called. The second is chosen. This means that a person responds to the calling. You're believing and you're acting on it. Being chosen doesn't mean we have special privileges. In fact, it means we have more obligations. Obligations to carry out the will of God. You know, we're all privileged when we come into the salvation of the Lord. But I think we kind of forget that we have obligations too. It's not all, what would we say, fun and games. Life is hard. But as his children, we have to be able to reach out and do his will no matter what we want. It's got to be his will. So we have to be called. We have to be chosen. So anyway, Jeremiah 7, 23. Obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the ways I command you that it may be well with you. So again, he's talking to the Israelites, but he's talking to us as well. The Old Testament has to come together. He's, and if you ever notice, and we've talked, and I know we've talked about this before, but God says, when he tells you something, do this, if you'll walk in my ways, that, or but, or if you will, we have to do what he wants in order for him to be able to do, to give us the promises, to give us the benefits of the relationship with him. The third thing is being faithful. That means that one remains committed to that calling throughout their lifetime. Sometimes we don't realize that the little things in life are important to our faithfulness. We may consider them as just part of life. But in doing the little things, we are showing God's love to others. Now, I wrote a few things down here. Because when you think about the little things, I think we tend to overlook the little things. Fixing a meal. It might be for your family, but you're doing that out of love. And if you're doing that for your family, it's a blessing. God, God honors that. Um, there is also teaching our children. We teach them life skills. But we especially need to teach them 
about the things of God. And when we're teaching the little ones, it's a little thing. We think that it's really a big thing on God's scale. Uh, praying with a friend. Even speaking words of, of encourage, encouragement to other people. We, you know, we do these things, I think, automatically, and we forget how important they are. We are to exhort one another. We are to lift one another up. It's not all about me. It's not all about you. It's about us and lifting each other up and being faithful to the Lord. We should view all of these from God's point of view instead of our own. If we did that, then we would see them in a different light, I think. No act of faithful, faithfulness, whether large or small, is ever wasted in God's kingdom. What seems insignificant to us may be the very thing he wants to use to bring others to him. I think about that. Giving a smile to somebody when you're and when I walk in the post office and I pass somebody, I always try to say good morning. I try. I don't always, but I try. And who knows if that person might need somebody to say good morning. And I'll be, I, I sent a text to my granddaughter, the, the Nathan's stepdaughter. And I just said, I want you to know today, this is a few days ago, how much I love you. And I want you to know that. And she texted back later and she said, Nana. You don't know how much I needed to hear that today. So see, it's the little things. Texting somebody and saying, you know, I'm thinking about you today. That's all it takes. You don't have to have a long, drawn-out, two-hour conversation. It's just letting them know that you care and that you're there for them. Though being called and chosen, through being called and chosen, the church becomes a part of the household of God. Ephesians 2.19 says, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So let's look at a royal priesthood. What does Peter mean by calling God's people a royal priesthood? In order to do that, we need to look at the, old, the priesthood of the Old Testament. Understanding them will help us understand the royal priesthood. So we're going to look. The tribe of Levi was chosen to serve as the priests of Israel. They served in the tabernacle. They were set apart as holy, and they were looked upon as belonging to God. Uh, Numbers 3.12 says, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine. The priests had many duties. We're going to look at three. The first one, sacrifices and offerings. So they were instructed by God to do sacrifices and offerings for the people of Israel. The next one is praying to God for the people. So they were intercessors. The third one is maintaining the tabernacle. If you read the instructions given by God, you will see there was a lot to do. Numbers 150 says, But you shall appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, over all its furnishings, and over all the things that belong to it. You see, they were, and everybody knows all this. You've read all the Old Testament. You know, in uh, Exodus and Leviticus, I was looking through that, and all the 
that they had to take care of. There was a lot. They also had to do daily offerings, monthly offerings, Sabbath offerings. They were in charge of the Passover offering, the Feast of Weeks, Feast of Trumpets, Feast of Tabernacle, and the Day of Atonement. There were grain, fellowship, sin, and guilt offerings, just to name a few. And they had to do all those. So in order for that to happen, they had to have lots of priests. Not just one, but lots. But however, there was only a, there was also an anointed role as high priest, and that was Aaron. The high priest made sure that all the responsibilities were done according to God's will and his directions. So there's always somebody in charge, right? No matter where you go in life, there's always somebody in charge. That's what I've always said. It doesn't matter where you work or where you live, there's somebody in charge. So in Hebrews 8, we find that God has ordained a new covenant that is through Jesus Christ, who is our high priest. He was the ultimate sacrifice. He was the example of God's law in action. Animal sacrifice no longer necessary because of Jesus' shed blood to cover all, his, all sins, and he intercedes with the Father for us. I'm going to repeat that several times, but it's really important that we know. And I know you all know that, but we need to hear it more and more. So, how are the people of God a royal priesthood? Christ's sacrifice and the gift of the Holy Spirit make a direct relationship with God pos possible under the new covenant. Converted Christians no longer need a physical priesthood as an intercessor between them and God. And Christians don't approach God through physical priests or physical temples. We come to church because we need to fellowship and to worship God together. That's strengthening us. But we don't have to have a building to do that in. We can worship and praise anywhere, anytime. Thank God. Because we need to. We, we might be, I was homesick with pneumonia. I couldn't be here. But I could worship God at home. I could worship God in my car. Anywhere that we go, we can worship. Under the new covenant, Christians, with the help of the Holy Spirit, can fulfill some of the basic functions that ancient Israel needed priests for. So, we have direct access to the Father through Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, earlier I read John uh, chapter 6, verse 44, and it says, the Father draws us. And this one says, no one comes to the Father except through Christ. So that just lets me know right there that the Father and Son are working together for us to come to salvation. Uh, we are the temple of God. We don't have to go to the temple to see a priest for forgiveness of sins. Now, I'm saying this. I'm not putting any religion down because there are those that still go to priests. That's between them and the Lord. But I don't have to do that. It tells me right there I can go straight to my Father. We are to present our bodies a living sacrifice. We do that instead of animal sacrifice. The Israelites had to act, sacrifice the animals. We do not. We are the living sacrifice. 
We have God's laws written on our hearts and are to learn to discern between good and evil using Jesus' example and the word. Revelation 5.10 also tells us have made uh, that we have been made kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Knowing that we will be kings and priests in God's kingdom helps us better understand why Peter described us as a royal priesthood. That's good to know. Christians are destined to lead and teach people on earth as a royal priesthood in the world to come. So, but we're already priests, aren't we? Just because we have a pastor, he's supposed to lead the sheep, but we're also priests to the world, to those in sin, to those around us. He can't go to everybody I know. He won't go to my neighbor and, or to my children. Uh, you know, like my son lives uh, somewhere else. He doesn't live here. He could, but do I not have responsibility? Do, does my husband not have responsibility? And so we all do. I think it's a little harder sometimes to talk to our own families, but with the power and the boldness of the Holy Spirit, if we pray for it, I believe God will give it to us and he'll open the doors of opportunity to speak to them the words that they need to hear because sometimes they have stubborn ears and they don't want to hear or stubborn hearts. But I'm praying and I pray for families in here all the time that God will remove the uh, scales from their eyes and the chains that bind them so that they can see and they can feel the presence of the Lord and come to know him as a personal Savior. So we're also a holy nation. As Christians, we are a holy people. Like Israel, we have been set apart from this world for a relationship with God and to fulfill his purposes. Our holiness consists not just in our being different from our neighbors, but also in our devotion in God's mission through us. The church of God is unified by the truth of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Together we form a spiritual nation of people that spreads throughout the world. Now I haven't been called to be a missionary. I have no desire to go to a foreign country and not be able to speak their language and try to talk to them about Jesus. I have been called to do that, but there are people who have been. And there are also Christians all over the world. And so this is what, it's, we're spread out. We're everywhere because God has called us and he has chosen us. And we are faithful. We are a holy nation because Jesus is holy and he calls us to holiness. Matthew 5, 48 says, Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Holiness is defined as being separate or set apart. To be holy, we must separate ourselves from sin. God commanded Israel, you are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy. And I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. Through Christ, we are a holy nation. We should reflect God's character with holy and godly lives. Just as he called Israel to be holy, he's called us to be holy too. So we need to be separate and set apart, but not to the point that we don't talk to anybody and hide in our little shells, you know? I 
never was much to talk to people. I was very shy, but Betty can attest to this, as I've gotten older, I talk a lot. <laughs> and I'm not as shy as I once was. <laughs> because God is starting to give boldness. And I think that, that we need to grasp onto that boldness and we need to spread it out and, and let other people know and, and be, be open to them, even though we may not, we don't have to like their sin, but we have to love them. Christ's New Testament church is a holy nation of royal priests. Jesus loved his church and gave his life to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. That's Ephesians 5.26. It says we are a holy nation, not because of our own ability to be holy, but because Jesus gives us everything we need to live a godly life. To live a godly life, we must become intimate with Jesus, learning more about him. And of course, we do that through prayer and through Bible study. But intimacy with the Lord is very important. I don't know, sometimes, I guess, at one point, that word kind of scared me a little, you know, to be intimate. But it's just to be close to him. That's what he wants. He wants us to lay back against him and breathe, to let him wrap his arms of love about us. It's important that we become that intimate, that we can tell him everything, our deepest, darkest secrets, things that we wouldn't tell anybody. He already knows, but he wants us to talk to him about it, and he will listen. God gives us the resources in Jesus Christ to be sanctified, to make, be made progressively more holy so that we can show forth his goodness and glory and draw others to him. We are God's holy nation, both when we are gathered for worship and fellowship and when we're scattered into the world as God's special representatives. A holy nation is not restricted to being so only in the house of worship. We are to be a holy nation in every walk of life, at home, at work, at the grocery store, the mall, everywhere we go. And it will show in our treatment of others. Have you ever been out and somebody just kind of ticked you off just a little bit and you weren't very Christ-like? Me too. I was in a big long line in a store. I mean a long one. And somebody was coming up and they said, oh, can I get in front of you? I said, well, I guess if you have to. He says, I'm just going to stand here forever. And that wasn't very nice, was it? And I really felt bad. The Holy Spirit convicted me and I said, oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. You know, I, I, we, but we're human and we make mistakes I'm just glad he doesn't say, well, I'm done with you. I'm so glad he doesn't do that because there are times I am nice to people, you know, but uh, it, when you do something like that, the Holy Spirit convicts you and he lets you know, shame on you. That wasn't nice. You should I should say, absolutely, go right ahead. But I was tired and I wanted to go home. <laughs> so I wasn't very nice. But that's my confession, right? Confession's good for the soul. Paul wrote to the believers in Rome, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because all of you, because of all he has done for you. 
Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Through faith in Jesus Christ, Gentiles have been accepted into the royal family as full citizens of God's holy nation. Christianity is more than just a set of beliefs. It's a way of life. Then he called us his own special people. King James Version says it's a peculiar people. The NIV says God's special possession. And the NLT says God's very own possession. I like those. Very own possession. God proclaimed Israel to be his special people in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 26, 18. And he revealed what would distinguish them, observing and walking in his laws and his ways. That's verses 16 and 17. Just like Israel... We are to be children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Philippians 2.15 That is how God's people, his holy nation, are to be truly special people. When we strive to be like Jesus, our attributes will make us distinguishable from other people on the face of the earth. Mm, mine didn't do that, did it? I pray every day, Lord, help me to be better than I than that because I know I can be with the help of the Lord. God's people are to come out from among them and be separate rather than becoming like the world around them. God's people today must strive to be a special people by adhering to God's laws and ways. You know, Jesus said he came not to get rid of the law but to fulfill the law. Now, we don't have to do all the things they did like the animal sacrifices because we have the shed blood of Jesus who covers our sins and all we have to do is go to him. But we still need to obey some of the laws. What about those Ten Commandments? We should do those, should we not? And there are lots of other things in there that we should do too. God's own special people contains two ideas. The first one is we belong to God exclusively. We belong to God exclusively. And the second one says, we belong to others who are part of, the, of his people. We belong to others who are part of his people. That's even if we disagree, maybe our personalities are different. Um, so we need to remember that we belong to others, not just ourselves. There are four things that Christ's sacrificial death accomplished to make his own to make his own special people. The first one is a purchased people. Christ gave himself for us. He purchased us with his own precious blood. He paid the ransom to free us from all sin. So we are a purchased people. Secondly, we are a purified people. Before we could be presented to a holy God, we had to be cleansed or purified from every sin or defect. We had to be without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. We had to be holy and without blemish. We could never accomplish this on our own. Only God, through Christ, 
could purify us that we might be presented to him. So we are a purchased people, a purified people, and a possessed people. And not the way you think. The expression, his own special people, literally means a people of his own possession. A people that are his own. Having been redeemed, purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, we need to realize that we now belong to God. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, it says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So we are a possessed people. The next one is a passionate people. In Titus 2.14, it says that as God's own special people, we are to be zealous for good works. The word zealous comes from a root word which means to boil with heat or to be hot. To be zealous means to burn with zeal or eagerness or you might say to be a passion, have a passion for. As God's special people in this present age of grace, we are to have a passion for serving the Lord, a burning desire to faithfully walk in those works that he has prepared for us. So we need to be zealous. We need to be hot. The word tells us, I would rather you be hot or cold or he's going to spew us out of his mouth. So let's get on fire. Let's get zealous. Let's burn for the Lord. Let's, let's talk about proclaiming his praises. In these verses, Peter further tells us what we need to do. Pro proclaim the praises of him who brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. When you think of praise, what comes to mind? What's the first thing you think about? Raising hands. Anything else? First thing that came to my mind, worshiping in song. We call it, we call it praise and worship. So that was the first thing I thought of. Well, this is just one of the many ways to praise him. Perhaps the most powerful way to proclaim his praises is through our daily conduct. Jesus said we are to let our light shine before others through our good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We must praise God in word and actions. When you're talking to somebody, do you actively listen? Or are you distracted? Do you make eye contact with that person? Or are you looking away? Do you smile? What about your body language? How about the way you speak to others? Is your tone calm? Or do you raise your voice in anger? Do you tend to argue instead of trying to see someone else's viewpoint? Do your words lift up or do they tear down? Those are all good things to think about in our conduct because we are God's holy temple. And we need to think about the way we speak, the way we interact. I've caught myself many times somebody talking to me and I've got 50,000 things that seem like going on and I'm, I'm getting distracted. But that's not what God wants us to do. He wants us to interact, to be, be aware of that person. Who knows when they might say something that it triggers your mind to say, oh, I need to pray. 
They, they, have, they have a need. They have a burden. Maybe they're sick. But if you're not listening and interacting, making eye contact, you won't know that because you're too busy with other things. What kind of offerings do we offer to God? Let's look at four. There are many more, but we're going to look at four. The first one is obedience. When we obey God in the way we live, we worship God. It says, offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Jesus made it clear that he desires not just outward obedience, but obedience from the heart. Next is financial gifts. And do not forget to do good and share with others. For with your such sacrifices, God is pleased. So we know that his word tells us we're supposed to give our first 10%. But do we give more? Do you give to other things? We have Appalachia coming up. Do you, do you participate in that? Do you buy gifts for children who are needy? Do you, uh, there's lots of things we can do, extra things with our money, you know? Do we support our youth? Do we support our women's ministries? Those different things. I mean, when we go above and beyond, he goes above and beyond, and he will bless us. Next, we have proclaiming the gospel. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. Now, I said a while ago, not everybody's called to be a missionary in faraway places. I know I'm not. But each of us are called to win the lost. We do this by telling others about what the Lord has done for us, for showing Christ through our words and actions. You know, sometimes I don't know what to tell people. I know I've been through some things, but, you know, I've been a Christian for so long. What do I say? But all I can say is God is good. He always answers prayer. It may not always be yes. It may not always be no. He may say, whoa, just wait a while. It's not ready yet. But God is good, and we need to proclaim that to everybody. Then the last one is praise. Psalm 54, 6. I will freely sacrifice to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. Psalm 50, 23. Whoever offers praise glorifies me. And to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. Psalms 104. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful and bless his name. I love the Psalms. They have such good things in there about praising the Lord. See, God has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. When God calls people into his truth, he frees them from the darkness that the enemy tries to ensnare them with. And he allows them to grasp and understand the light of his truth. As a result of this calling, God's people commit their lives to walk as children of light. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. If we look at verse 10, it says, who were once not a people. Verse 10 in chapter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, 9, we did 9. And verse 10, it says, you were once people, were not a people, but now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. I really like that verse because it lets me know that I once was lost, but now I'm found. 
I was no one, but I received Christ as my Savior, and he made me someone. He adopted me into his family. I was without mercy until Jesus found me and covered me with his precious blood, washed away all my sins, and set me on the right course toward eternal life with him. Now I have all I need, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if nothing else, tonight you are called, you are chosen. Be faithful in the Lord. And that's the end of that lesson. So let's go through the questions. First Peter chapter 2, verses 9. Uh, the first question, Peter gives more description of what God's people are to be. Chosen generation, royal priesthood, holy nation, his own special people, yes. Question number two, how does one enter the family? Called, chosen, faithful. The priest had, number three, the priest had many duties. What are three? Sacrifice and offerings. Intercession, praying for God's people. And maintaining the tabernacle. We need to maintain our tabernacle here too. Number four, God's own people contains two ideas. What's the first one? We belong to God exclusively. And we belong to others who are part of the people. That's right. Number five, four things that Christ's sacrificial death accomplished to make us his own special people are purchased people, purified people, possessed people, passionate people. And the last one, number six, four offerings to God. Obedience. Financial gifts, proclaiming the gospel, and praise. 